A very good morning. It's lovely to see you all here this morning. I hope you've all had a good week. Turn to the neighbour and say, out of ten, what sort of week you've had. Five out of ten. Has it been a good week? Try and be honest. Have you all been honest? I've had about out of six out of ten week. Well, two weeks ago, Neil spoke on our 32nd birthday. And he was talking about how we've been ascending church and we've sent out 17 churches, but how also we are an extremely generous church. And you guys showed your generosity even last week because when we had out the Eden Ministries jewelry, I'm seeing all these lovely people and, the, and I want to say and run and give you hugs. It's so lovely to see you this morning. And last week, if you remember, um, I'll, I'll get to Emma's talk, but Emma spoke beautifully and we had a stall at the back and we, you lot, spent almost £400 on jewelry, which is Oh, thank you so much, James, which is absolutely incredible. I mean, and all that money goes to the Eden Ministries. So Neil spoke last um, two weeks ago. I'm just letting you know my thinking. I'm taking you with me. And um, so Neil spoke two weeks ago on our birthday, um, the church's birthday, on Myanmar and Kenya. And they're the ministries that we have really been leaning into. Neil's been to Myanmar with Charlie, and I've been to Kenya with Joe and Helen, last, and my daughter Esther. And we've gone and we've been their hands and feet, Jesus' hands and feet where we've gone. But I'm just saying that we have really leaned into these. And between the 1st of September to the 30th of November, the, the um, what do we call those? The money bits. Oh, the offering, the offering. We, gosh, I, you can tell it's going to be a good sermon. Um, if I carry on like that, I'm going to get into it. Don't worry. This is my introduction. It's taken me a while. Um, we are going to give all the money to Lunchbowl Network, and um, which are they're doing incredible things out in Kenya. And if you've ever got a moment to pray, um, and I heard that World Prayer went to Kim Plummer's house group this week, and I heard they had an amazing time. Um, so if you've got a moment to pray for Kenya and Myanmar, do so, because they really know that we are for them. They know that we are here, and we know that they, we champion them, and we celebrate them, and we thank the Lord for them. So, but if last week was Emma Brown's wonderful talk, and she was talking on Freedom Sunday, which is an initiative which IGM, which is the International Justice Mission, has um, started And she showed these fantastic videos, Emma showed these fantastic videos of women being trafficked and their stories going through. And she spoke incredibly passionately. If you missed her talk, do listen to it. But I just wanted to highlight IGM. IGM and their CEO, Gary, I don't know his first, I don't know him by first name, so I just sound like I do, but his first, what is his surname? Hogan. I, he ha, is full-on Christian, so he, I, IGM has got Christian foundations. But what I love about them, not their elevator pitch, but what they have on their websites, it says, we know where people are enslaved, and we have a plan to rescue them. I just love that. I love the vision. I love the large vision. It's such an incredible organization. Such, we thank God for these people who have such passion and such vision that the Lord has given them, that they've taken the baton and are running with the baton that is given to them. As I mentioned, that Neil mentioned about us being a church planting, ch- that church planting church, one of the churches back in the day in 2007 and 8, we sent a chap and his beautiful wife, and, uh, Ros, Andrew and Ros Wallace, to Bristol. And um, if many of you who maybe are new to this uh, vineyard, this church is the oldest church in vineyard, south of the vineyard, is the oldest church in Europe. We're 32 years old, so very young. We've planted 17 churches, but all the church planters sort of came from here. They all came and they went. They all came and they took the baton from John and Ellie or Neil and I, and they went and they started doing their own churches. And... Andrew and Ros went and planted a fantastic church in Bristol. But then one day, I make it sound like a story, well, they sat down with the police officers of um, Bristol and they were suddenly faced how massive 
the problem of um, the shocking problem and the evidence when the police told them about um, what was going the trafficking in this country was so vast that they thought they felt compelled it talks about um, the, uh, the um, disciples being compelled by the love of Christ they felt compelled to start unseen which is an incredible another incredible organization and what they do do look on their website they they help um, people who have been enslaved find homes and and set not just leave them there but they help them on their journey of recovery the same as um, same as IGM so you know you can hear in my heart that this is part of going forward so I've been sort of asking the Lord Lord what do you want me to talk on and um, so here we are today on the 29th of September and I see such lovely friends and faces in the congregation it's lovely to see I'm, I do mean it I do love I love this church I have been here I'm 51 I got saved at 21 and I've been here 30 years I have seen a lot here we've gone in we've gone out we've gone in we church planted but it's all been wonderful I'm going to get to my sermon well I felt the Lord say we're going to look at Esther the book of Esther so the next three weeks, I know you're going to go three weeks on Esther. Yes, I have a lot to say on Esther. We're going to look at the book of Esther together. But we're, we're not going to do it in some kind of cursory way and get to the famous line, such a time as this. We're going to go and look at it and see what the Lord is saying to us in this time. For what's, what happened in Esther and we're going to put it into every, our everyday lives today. Right. Let's start. Let's, so if you've got a book, the Bible, <laughs> let's open at uh, chapter 1. And we're going to read 1 to 12, and then we're going to go to verse 19. So this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings or marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement, of potpourri and marble, mother of pearl and all the other costly stones. Wines were served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant. In keeping with the king's liberality, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in a high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs, whose names I'm not going to say, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. We'll just skip to verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes, also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she is. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that we can come here today in freedom 
to worship you. We thank you for your presence, O oh God. We thank you for who you say you are. We thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you call us each by name again and again and again. May your love unfold over us this morning and let my words fall to the ground, but Lord, let you speak to the heart, the heart of each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the, the first thing I want to draw out from the passage is this idea of appearances and the kinds of world Persia media had the, and the, the, the kinds of world view of Persia media. Now, the historical context tells us within that worldview, wealth, appearance, and materialism was everything. So the location was this place called Susa, the summer capital of the Persian kings in modern-day Iran. Although Persepolis was the headquarters of the empire, Susa was best known and the most often mentioned, and it was so beautiful, and it was outstanding on its own terms. Just the palace complex where the story takes place occupied five hectares and was built on an artificially raised 12-hectare um, platform. It was a spectacular feat of engineering and beauty. Access to the palace complex was on a huge long pavement of bricks from the south and it went through the entire royal city. So if you were going there, everyone knew about it. The materials used were the very best timber, stone, gold and silver. And the climate meant there were the famous hanging gardens of Babylon that the Persians had taken over from the Babylon's empire, taken the technology and the brilliance of those gardens were here too. Susa was a city of idols. There were more than 200 gods and goddesses mentioned in the literature of that time. But the philosophy of the empire was a version of materialism. And that is not unlike the dominant worldview of today in which we live in the West. They believe that matter and the physical realm is all there is. There is no real spiritual dimension. There is no moral authority above us. Physical stuff is all there is. And the Persians believed that the gods and goddesses they worship were just iterations, just outworkings of that matter. They did not have any good godlikeness sense like we understand godlikeness in the Bible. In their mind... And in their world, physical stuff and appearance was everything. Now, King Xerxes reigned over this Persian empire. He, he considered himself pretty great. He was the ultimate materialist. He curated and managed his appearance and his image in order to wield his power. Notice in the text the colors of the linen, the different materials used to displaying his tremendous wealth, his stuff, his image, his wealth, his appearance mattered to him. They were the currency of his power. Now, archaeologists have discovered inscriptions of Xerxes, and one of them says this. You can imagine them standing here like this when I'm saying this. I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings, the king of all kinds of people with all kinds of origins, king of this great world, great and wide, son of King Darius the Archimedes. Well, this king, this guy, well, this king thought pretty highly of himself. Now, in this book, which I still find extremely extraordinary, the, sorry, someone's texting me, Where's, where is my phone? Oh, it's underneath here. This is my daughter, Esther. <laughs> it is, actually. But she goes, morning, hope your talk goes well. Oh, I don't know. How's it going so far? Well, I'll let her, <laughs> I'll let her know. Anyway, go back to it. Oh, thank you. Who is that? Friend? Oh, definite friend. Friend for life. Um, anyway, I'll go back. So in this book, which I find incredible, his name is mentioned, what do you think, 10 times, 20 times? It's mentioned 190 times in 167 verses. In contrast... God's name is never mentioned. 
Not once, not even once. Xerxes reigned over an empire that stretched from India to Ethiopia. It covered everything up to the very limit of people's imagination and exploration. In other words, this king was the king of the known world. This was what Esther's world felt like. It was a world filled with that kind of king, his name, his materialism, his wealth, and his self-centeredness. And the God of the Bible, the God of Esther's ancestors, were barely given a first thought, let alone a second thought. And this is the context of this book. Do not rush over it. Think about what that actually means about the relevance of scripture to our lives. Verse 1 tells us that King Xerxes ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. Verse 2 says he reigned from his royal throne and he gathers all the important people and he gives these feasts. Wow, these feasts, the feasts lasting six months. I can barely make a night. And notice the language, display the glory of his majesty. The kind of language that the Old Testament might use about God is attributed to this king. Then the feast in the garden for seven days. So his motive is he wants to show everyone his royal glory. He wants to be seen as great and good. He has control over geography. He has control over money. He has control over huge numbers of people, including some pretty powerful individuals. But we see from this story, he does not have control over his wife, although he tries. Now, this book is kind of filled with irony. There is a whole sort of literary way of looking at the book of Esther. It is supposed to be quite funny. There are aspects of it we are supposed to laugh at. And this whole description of this pompous king is meant to make us laugh. Because, does not, because God does not care about appearances. Our God really doesn't care about appearances. He's all about the heart. But the question the writer is prompting in our hearts is, do we? Are we buying into the Instagram age, a life that looks perfect, whether it be our clothes, homes, travel experiences? Are we buying into that lie that we can only be happy if our life, our partner, our experiences look a certain way to a watching world? Our appearance is everything to you. As we see in this book of the Bible, it is utterly toxic. So the book, the book of Esther opens with this party, this feast hosted by the king in the palace. It goes on for six months, and he is parading his glory. And it is all built up for a military campaign. He needs to support and loyalty for a military campaign. He's about to launch in Greece, but it's not going very well. On the last day, with the entire city gathered, he commands the queen to come before him. He has shown off everything he has owns, and now he wants to show off something else he owns. Now he wants to show off something else that he regards as just material, physical thing. He wants everyone to be jealous of this beautiful thing he owns. So he brings his wife, or he tries to bring his wife, but she refuses to come. Queen Vashti refuses to appear before a drunken group of people and be paraded as an object. She takes her stand against objectification and as a result, she is stripped of her position. And the king issues an edict. The edict says at the end of chapter one, every man is the ruler of his household. In other words, the message is clear. The king and men like him are to be feared. The king holds Vashti to his materialistic view of things. And as a result of it, he launches an international beauty pageant to replace the queen and compels all these beautiful young women to come and, uh, come and be amongst them and come. And in amongst these beautiful women was Esther. If we think about it, not a lot has changed from the day of King Xerxes. The party, the pageant, the spectacle, the love of her parents, men being measured by wealth, 
bravado and dominance, women by beauty, sexuality, and compliance. The culture tells us to judge people by external measures. It tells us that what we have, money, beauty, talent, or power, matters much more than who we are. It demands we go under beauty treatments to make us better, to give us sexier bodies, and to make us materially more acceptable to the physical world. But when we adopt that kind of a parents-driven approach to life, we are going to miss out on God showing up. We are going to miss out on seeing how God works in his world. Tim Keller writes it like this. When you see one of the ten plagues, you know that's God. But when you see King Xerxes getting drunk and bragging, you don't say, wow, that's God. But the book of Esther is trying to tell us something. Trying to communicate. Don't make that mistake. Don't forget that God is at work in every situation, even that situation. God is at work even in our world of materialism, even in our world obsessed with appearance, even our world that says there is no God. And all that matters is all that is physical. God is, in, God is at work in, in that world. I went to um, David's tent at the end of August. I, I was just still in recovery from my neck. So when I wasn't worshipping, I was lying in the tent. And, uh, Judy, and uh, Judy and Sarah came and ministered to me often in my tent, and, um, which is very sweet of them. And anyway, but I love, I just wanted to give you the vision. If you haven't been there, it is extraordinary. It's like heaven on earth. It's 72 hours of worship. And at night, they light a fire. It's in the, um, oh, what's the estate called? Uh, West, no, I know it's West Sussex. What's the estate? Wiston, the Wiston estate where the big church day out is. And um, it is an extraordinary thing. And what I love about it is people are hungry for God. People from every, there were every corners of the world came down to this part of the Sussex countryside in the tent, this tent. Balmy, but it was beautiful. It was, I just love it. I, I worship and worship and I worship who we worship. And I don't care that I look eccentric at 50, worshipping the Lord with a sore neck. But I was just going to give him my all because I believe in who he is. I cry out to him about our world. But what I love is the way that the bands come on and they honor one another. There's no hierarchy. They honor. And they're not setting themselves up a church. It's like every denomination were there in this tent. It was, it was, if you don't, if you haven't gone, I would encourage you just to go for a morning or a day. It is just a piece of heaven. Because people are not looking at each other. They're just focused on Christ. They honor the next band. And I love that. I love that. I love passion. And from that, they're planting one in, South, um, in America. And David's tent in about a week's time is about to start where the vineyard actually started. It's starting over there in California. And our own Jeremy Riddle that's at the Anaheim Vineyard is starting that in, in the David's tent over there. But that's not what I wanted to communicate to you. God is at work. He is moving. And as Ellie would say, Aslan is on the move. Just on that point, that she spoke incredibly. Uh, I think, actually, um, what, what's um, Pete Gregg's week called? Um, wildfires. And I think that's on the Western Estate as well. And just on that note, the people who own the Western Estate, they, the woman was from South, the, the lovely couple, woman, the lovely couple, um, she had a dream. She was praying over the land of this estate, praying over it, saying, let your kingdom come. And she had a dream of the tent. Can you believe it? And over all the time, so she's got David's tent, um, Pete Gregg's thing, and what's called wildfires, and, um, and the, great, the church big day out, all on her estate. 
from people from all over the world come to Sussex to worship the king. And I love it. And I thank the Lord for these leaders who get up and preach and organize these events. All these people, we've got so much to pray about, gang. We, you know, there's so much to thank God for. And Ellie preached at, um, oh, what's it called? I think it's going from my brain. Wildfires. And she was absolutely incredible. I would listen to it. Wildfires, it's, it, download it. She was amazing. It was beautiful. And we need to pray for all that the Lord is doing in, you know, in this kingdom. And then we take Soul Survivor, which ended this summer. And it almost like Mike sort of threw out some batons when it ended. Like he finished his part of the race and he threw out the batons. And it's almost like we caught one, the vineyard caught one. And then HTB have caught a baton. And loads of other people have caught batons and they're running with it. So we've got the DTI, HTB have got, they're focusing, they're doing another bit of focus on the youth. But the youth are being noticed, they are being focused on. And we need to get behind it and pray. They caught the baton, we are catching the baton and we are running. The baton, what baton are you catching at the moment? What baton are you running with? Is it prayer that you feel compelled to? Camilla's running with her podium. I mean, it's extraordinary, Camilla Bike. Extraordinary. The late Heather Higgins, the wonderful woman. She ran with caring for newborns, delivering babies from mothers to, you know, bring them into the world. Extraordinary gifting. We have all got gifts, never compare. But just to say, what baton are you running with at the moment? The second thing that we talk about, Esther, is that materialism can't laugh. But God's word thinks it's really funny to frame life in terms of just appearances. It is literally laughable that Esther's story is a reversal of the expected What appears inevitable isn't. Who appears powerful isn't. Appearances are not what they seem. Now Esther is written as a book, generations after the event when it took place. So the original hearers had a great long description of Xerxes, of his partying and special handmade goblets and his linen and everything. They heard all that But they knew that in a few months, he was going to return from his campaign in Greece utterly deserted, utterly defeated as a ruler. They know how God used Esther to save the Jewish people. They know that the one who tried to destroy God's people himself ended up being destroyed. Amy or Ewing, who was supposed to come and speak, but just hold on. She is coming to celebrate our 33rd birthday in 2020. 2020. She had had a herniated disc, bless her, so we need to pray for her. But she tells this wonderful story that when she goes to Russia, she went to Russia and uh, to the Russian church, and it was their annual youth conference. Now, Now in Reykjavik, some of us are old enough to remember in 1987, in Reykjavik in 1987 had, Reagan had extracted certain concessions from President Gorbachev during the whole perestroika thing. One of the concessions he had extracted was 1,500 church leaders would be set free from prisons and concentration camps. When Gorbachev came home, that happened in one weekend. And at that point in the Soviet Union, there were 64 then small churches. By the point that Amy goes to visit visit the Russian church, which was recently, they had planted just over 5,000 churches, and many of them were big. All began in that weekend when 1,500 church leaders were released from prison. And they met together, and God gave them a vision of the evangelization of their country. He gave them a vision of what the Lord will do in that country. 35 years from Perestroika, Amy was at this conference and there was such a presence of God. She talks about the presence of God. 
And it was an incredible time full of young leaders. And it was the next generation of the parents who were in the concentration camps. It was their children. And the people who were atheists had got saved. They ended up worshipping the Lord like David's ten, just worshipping the Lord, compelled to worship the King of Kings, praying, dedicating their lives to bringing the gospel to that nation. So filled with joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. They laughed at the folly of materialism because they had Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus, it's all about Jesus. I've often talked to you about the vision I have for church, that there would be a church with no walls, and all you could see is Jesus, the cross. All from outside, from every 360, from 360 degrees, we're a city on a hill. And it wouldn't be, there wouldn't be any hot air, there'd be no, it'd be cold, we'd all have our coats on, but however, Jesus would be on fire, Jesus would be a... Jesus would be seen. So we read the story today as followers of Jesus. Be encouraged. Appearances are not everything. God is working even the darkest and shallowest cultures. And in this book, the joke is on those that put their trust in appearances. So materialism does away with God. But the fact there is no mention of God in this book emphasizes the theme of God's providence and his presence. This God is so powerful, so big, so awesome. His name, he doesn't even need to be mentioned in this book. What a contrast with the posturing King Xerxes, who needs his name dropped constantly. In the past, when God's people were in trouble, he sends miraculous signs and wonders. When we read it about in the scriptures and hear stories about it, we are amazed. But in this book, there is no mention of God at all, no vision no dream, no prophecy, no mention of him. Is it accidental? Or is it actually the point? God's silence or his hiddenness is not his absence. God's hiddenness is not his abandonment. Esther teaches that. And we see a kind of realistic account of how God's providence often works. Apparently, incidences that happen by coincidence, coincidence, one after the other, God working through human history, not with outstanding miracles, but through completely ordinary events, is what this book is about. That is an encouragement to me. Ordinary events, acts of kindness, obedience, Sometimes it's very easy to feel if we haven't seen five miracles before breakfast. (sighs) Is that really the Christian life? But actually, this book is in the Bible to say it is normal to live in a society that people do not think of God. Where God's name is not mentioned, that does not mean he is absent. We may, it does not mean he is not absent, sorry. We may not constantly experience matters of miracles. And life can be hard, I know that. But God is real. He is who he says he is. And we can trust him. Often we don't know until afterwards how God has worked out things in our lives. He does feel absent. I don't say the next bit lightly. The Feast of King Xerxes describes the reality of the world for many women, men, and children. On IGM's website, it says there are 50 million uh, people enslaved at this current present time. The Bible does not sugarcoat the situation for women and men and children in a suffering world. In chapter 2, verse 2, I know this is just talking about women. Let a search be made for a beautiful young 
virgins for the king. As many as, there's, there's controversy about how many. Some people say a 1,000, some people, historians say 400, but we don't know. But we know there were 127 provinces, and we know the girls were taken. We don't need to study Hebrew to study what the phrase has been. We can figure out what's going on. The Bible isn't squeamish about looking about what happened. And as we heard from Emma last week on Freedom Sunday by IGM, their initiative, doing phenomenal work in the fight against modern-day slavery, in the world, 27 million today. Actually, I've just changed that because I was looking at the website. It's 40 million. It was an update. 40 million people today are enslaved. 40 million. Outside the dynamic of slavery, some studies suggest that as many as 11 million adults in Britain today are survivors of sexual abuse. 11 million. Why was Esther and why were the women taken? Why did God let this happen? If a loving God, if a loving God existed, why would he not intervene and stop an utterly evil thing being done to someone? How can we hold a view there is a good God when such terrible things do happen? Now, we're all going to bring different experiences to bear on this question. I do just want to acknowledge the horror of some of that that is, that is, that is going on in this room. People may be thinking of people or just different things going on in brains. Even as we think about our own personal engagement with this. But think about what it means that experience of women is deemed worthy of being recorded, worthy of being acknowledged in the Bible. Pain can be inflicted by the evil of another person, but the rapacious selfishness of another person. And as we come to this text, this raises these questions. Where is God? When we read the Old Testament, we will remember that the biblical account of the world tells us that the will of a person is explained and explored by human decision-making. Human choice that makes love possible, that makes it possible to be a bearer of God's image in this world, also makes evil possible. And as human beings, we exercise our decision-making capacity for good, for love, and for harm. That is why we end up with the world that we see around us. But the Bible does not leave us there. But the Bible tells us of a God who is the judge. And every person who has ever lived will be held account. Acts 17 says, he said today when his will, he will judge the world with justice. But sometimes I wonder if we've lost the sight of goodness of judgment. Our hearts cry out for justice. When we hear about the victims of evil, I hope your heart hurt, is hurt when you think about these 400 virgins taken from their homes and put in the harem. In the Christian faith, God is the perfect and just judge. When evil things happen, we may not see civil justice done, seeing the perpetrators or perpetrator pay a price in prison. Sometimes we do. But the promise of the Bible is that every single person will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every rapist, every war criminal, every domestic bully, every person. So when we read about Xerxes, we read about this with that in mind. The Bible indicates that we all some way are a victim and perpetrator. Our oppressors will be held to account and so we we. But for Christians, the good news is Jesus. That through his death on the cross, Jesus Christ makes a way for us to stand before God paying the penalty for us. Now, it may seem to us the degree that we have hurt other people. Sorry, the light shines in my words. Now, it may seem to us the degree that we have hurt other people seems microscopic, tiny, to a rape or human trafficking. So we might think that it's not good news to hear that perpetrators can be forgiven. How can there be an equivalence between the sins of an ordinary person losing their temper or shouting at their children and the kind of acts of violence and abuse that we see here? 
This is when we need to take care. Christian forgiveness is not saying that something bad happening does not matter anymore. It does matter. Christian forgiveness acknowledges the absolute depravity and awfulness of the thing being forgiven, such that it demands that God, who is the King of kings, the King of all people, of all origins, that God himself dies on a cross, that he takes every wrongdoing upon himself. When it comes to cases of wrongdoing involving law-breaking, including rape or domestic violence or child abuse, acknowledging and receiving forgiveness would involve confessing those crimes and being prepared to pay the civil penalty for them. Civil rights preacher Dr. Martin Luther King wrote, True peace is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. Christian forgiveness is not saying that a sin or a violation does not matter. It is saying that it really matters. It matters so much. That it matters so much that every image of God in a fellow human being has been harmed. It matters so much that God in Christ was to die on the cross and suffer separation from the Father and take the evil upon himself. Some of you may have read the accounts of the Olympic gymnast for the USA gymnast team, Rachel Dan Hollander. Sixteen years after the American team's doctor first sexually abused her, she decided to publicly reveal that she had been one of the victims and spoke at his sentencing. And this is what she said. There are two major purposes of our criminal justice. The pursuit of justice and the protection of the innocent. Neither of these purposes can be met if anything less than the maximum and available sentence under the plea agreements is imposed upon Larry for his crimes. I realize you may, you have many factors to consider when you fashion your sentence, but I submit to you that the preeminent question is this, in this case is, how much is a little girl worth? How much is a young woman worth? And we could go and say, how much is a young boy, a young man? How much priority should be placed on communicating that the fullest, this is um, Rachel, how much priority should be placed in communicating that the fullest weight of the Lord should be used to protect other innocent children from the soul-shattering devastation that sexual assault brings? I submit these children are worth everything and are worth the maximum sentence. And she goes on to address Larry, Larry as she notices that he's brought a Bible into court with him. And she says this, The Bible you speak carries the final judgment, where all of God's wrath and eternal terrors poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God. Which you need far more forgiveness than from me. And to the judge, he said, I ask you, hand down a sentence that tells us What has been done to us matters. That we are known and worth everything, worth the protection of the Lord, the greatest measure of justice available. Larry Nasser received a 175-year sentence and Rachel extended him a release of personal forgiveness and asked for the full sentence for his crime. Justice matters if people matter. This is what IGM does and many other organizations. The Bible accounts, lawyers do it day in, day out. The Bible accounts, it tells us people are worth God dying for, that the life given to each of us is precious. And the experience of a teenage girl trafficked 
is significant and is important enough to be recorded in the Bible. And for thousands of years later, we are sitting here talking about it, reading about it, thinking about it. Has God abandoned Esther? No, he is with her. And he is with you. And he is with me. When we are disappointed, when we are heartbroken, when we fail him, when we don't take the highest road, he has loved us when we have been harmed by others, he has loved us. There's a beautiful story coming out of Cairo at the moment from one of the refugee camps. And when ISIS, when Raqqa Mosul was falling, the ISIS fighters sent their wives and children amongst the other refugees in the camps. And they sent word to their fellow jihadis. Would you look after our wives and children because they know they wouldn't return, knowing that they were going to die. But no help came. The only help that came was all from the Christians. The Christians in those camps loved those women and children. They poured out God's love upon them. And many and many of them have come to know Jesus. God is at work. We cannot contain God. Even King Solomon, when he built him the palace, we were talking about in the prayer group this morning, we cannot contain God. God is out there. You know, I have this beautiful, um, there's a story that Jackie Plunger talks about in Hong Kong. Um, that she was preaching one day at church and then there was one of her old ladies who was really ill in bed and, uh, and she met Jackie afterwards and sort of said, oh, did Jesus turn up at your, your meeting? Because he was sitting at the bottom of my bed. And it was like, you know, Jesus is there. He is with people. He is with the homeless, the brokenhearted, the lonely, the afraid. And we, you know... Thank the Lord he is. His ways are not our, our ways. We can trust God. He is real. Our stories matter. Our personal stories matter. And even the most dark and hopeless experiences, there's, we are never alone. We are never alone. And sometimes it feels that we are. But we have to understand that God is with us. Why don't you stand? I'm just going to pray St. Patrick's prayer over you all. So I feel like it's very fitting. In fact, the Salvation Army has it inscribed at their headquarters up in town on their glass, if you're ever up there, on their glass uh, windows. They've got this, this all around it. Come, Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for your presence. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down. Christ when I arise, Christ of the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength the invocation of the Trinity through the belief in the threeness, through the confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. Lord, we are so grateful for what you are doing in this country. 
We are so thankful for the generations that have gone before us who have made it possible for the prayers that have soaked this land. Rain down on us again. I commit every single person to you, Lord. Every conference, every leader, every single person who is part of a church and beyond, people who are not and the ones to come in. Lord, I pray for the unsaved. I pray for the homeless. I pray for the vulnerable. I pray for those who need to know that who you say you are, you are. I thank you, Lord, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we can depend upon you. Even when we feel there is nothing happening or we cannot see you at work, you are at work. Give us a faith that we can run the distance. Give us the strength to run the race that you are setting before us. Wake us up in the middle of the night with dreams and visions, Lord. Give us fresh batons to run the race that you are setting before us. Like people are doing for Soul Survivor, David's Tent, church planting, I mean, house group leading, all of that. You're taking on the next baton. God bless you all, for it is seen. All that we do, all that we act upon is seen. How we live our lives, Lord, give us the strength, the wisdom, the courage. Give us our daily bread. And when we feel like we're walking through the shadow of death, you are with us. I'm just going to finish with a scripture from, sorry, if you can just stay standing, unless you need to sit down. It's um, Matthew four sixteen. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Lord, we commit the trafficking situation to you. May these people and people come up with fresh new ideas. We commit people in difficult situations to you this morning, Lord. People struggling with past hurts. Let a fresh dawn arise. Let your healing come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.